All right, that said, let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to John chapter 20. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll get one into your hands. John 20, two verses this morning, verses 30 and 31. John 20, 30 and 31. After a short break, we are restarting, restarting our study of the Gospel of John with a new theme. I trust that you have paid attention and noticed that. A new theme and a new text. We left off in John chapter 1 and we're picking up in John chapter 20. Makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? And you thought it was going to take years and years to get through this gospel. <laughs> chapter 20 gives us the explicit reason that John writes. That's why I want to skip ahead almost to the very end here and cover these two verses first so that we have this structured, we have this encased, we have the foundation for why we're going to study the entire book, however long it takes. Because John 20 in these two verses contains the purpose for the entire book, which leads to the background, the setting and the circumstances under which it was written, followed by the differences. The differences between this gospel, this account of Christ's life, and the others. And by the way, as I use the word gospel this morning, sometimes, most of the time, in fact, this morning, I'm referring to an account of Christ's life. At its bare, that's what gospel means. It means a, a message, in this case, of the life of Christ. And so there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts of the life of Christ. Most often, however, when I talk about gospel, I'm talking about capital G, gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus, fully God, fully man, came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death on our behalf, taking on our sins so that we wouldn't have to, and then three days later rose again so that we can too so that we can have life to the full and life forever spiritually, and one day when Christ returns, part of the gospel as well, when Christ returns, we can have life physically also. The gospel, capital G. But most of the time this morning, it's small g referring to John's account of the life of Jesus. So let's start with the text and consider each of these categories in turn, the purpose, the background, and the differences. You follow along, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose couldn't be clearer that we may believe, that we may believe. Verse 31, look at it there again. These signs, these miracles, these events, these indicators of the life of Christ and all that he is, signs, all that he has done, signs. These are written, John says, so that you may believe. Believe. A word found 98 times in this Gospel. Believe, believes, belief or believing. 98 times. 
which makes this gospel, this account of the life of Christ, one great big apologetic, a big word that simply means a reasoned defense of, a reasoned argument for. The fact that believe is found so many times makes this one great big encouragement, one great big urging, one great big exhortation to believe. To believe. Especially with this purpose statement. It's one great big encouragement. These are written so that you may believe. Hence, the theme that's going to overarch all of this study and undergird all of this study. These are written that you may believe. But notice here, he's not talking about a one and done decision to believe. Believe and forget about it. Believe and never think about it again. Not talking about that. That would be true of like the first time that you drove across the new I-74 bridge. If you're anything like me thinking, okay, okay, I believe. I believe that this thing will hold me. I sure hope they tested it. I was consciously thinking that the first time I drove across. Maybe a little bit the second time, but after that, never thought about it again. Haven't thought about it since. My belief in the fact that that bridge will hold me. That's not what John's talking about here when he says belief. Furthest thing from it. He wrote that we may continue to believe. Think about it all the time. That's the verb tense in Greek, the original language. It's believe and keep believing. It's believe and never ever stop. It's believe and dwell on it constantly through all eternity until we die and thereafter, never ever keeping it far from our minds or letting it go far from our minds. That's the kind of believe John is talking about. Which means this book isn't just written for unbelievers. It's you maybe have heard from time to time in church world, somebody says, where should I start in the Bible? Read the book of John. For various reasons, we'll find out as we study this thing, that's both good advice and bad advice. In fact, I'll touch on it a little bit later. But it, this indicates this idea that it's a continual believing that John is talking about indicates it's not just written for unbelievers. It's written for us. It's written for believers. It's written for the church that we may believe and never stop. Believe all of our lives. So we best know what it means. What it means to believe. Which seems fairly intuitive to us. Fairly obvious, I think. Oh, to believe is to believe. Duh. Like what, what, what else could there be? How else could you say it? Well, a lot of ways. John does. It seems fairly intuitive, but dialing in on the aspects of belief, the aspects of acceptance, trust, and faith makes it abundantly clear. If you make a statement, if we're in a conversation, if you make a statement and I say, I believe you, most likely I'm saying that I accept what you said as true. I accept it as true. I believe you. I accept it as true. For instance, if you were to say, this 
airplane will safely carry you. Notice we left off all logos. <laughs> if you were to say, this airplane will safely carry you, and I say, I believe you, I'm conveying that I accept what you're saying at face value. I accept it as true. Which is the first way in which John uses the word believe. Accept as true. Accept as true. These things are written so that you may accept as true that Jesus is the Christ, etc. These things are written that you may accept as true that Jesus is the Christ. But that's definitely not it. That may be the extent of our intuition about belief, but there's more, far more. The second aspect of belief is trust. Trust. If you say, this airplane will safely carry you, but I don't get on board, I don't take my seat, I don't darken the door of the thing, I may accept what you're saying as true, but I clearly don't trust you, nor the plane. I clearly don't trust you. I don't trust what you're saying. I don't trust the plane that you're looking at. On the other hand, if you say it's safe and I get on and take my seat, I completely trust you. I completely trust. Illustrating the second aspect of belief. These things are written so that you may completely trust that Jesus is the Christ. Completely trust. Completely trust that he can and will save you. Save you to the uttermost, as the book of Hebrews tells us. Completely trust that he can and will carry you. Just like you completely trust that the airplane can and will carry you. That's the second aspect of belief. The third is faith. Acceptance, trust, and faith. A term often used interchangeably with belief and Legitimately so in the scriptures, for sure, for sure. To believe is to have faith, and to have faith is to believe. But here, I'm referring to a specific part of faith, namely the assurance of something hoped for. That part of faith, the assurance of something hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. 1. The assurance of something promised but unseen. Like, for instance, saying, I believe the plane will safely deliver me home, home. In which case, I have faith in the promise of future deliverance. I have faith in the promise of future deliverance. Or in the case of Jesus, the future deliverer. To believe, as John uses it, is to accept as true, completely trust, and have faith in Jesus. Jesus. All of which, if I might say, eliminates the teeth-grinding drivel at most funerals. God help us. It nearly makes me crazy on the rare occasion that I'm at a funeral and I'm not conducting it. And I hear these pleasant platitudes that people spouse, espouse just to make us feel better. You know, with the implication that belief, belief in and of itself 
is all that's important. You've, you've heard the statements. I, I sure am glad so-and-so believed. He, he sure did have faith. And I think to myself, so what? Oh, so what? Like, had faith in what? Believed in what? They're just empty words to make us feel good. He, he sure was serious about his religion. He, he sure was faithful. Who cares? You just as well say he was serious about the 49ers. Faithful to the chiefs. If there's no object to the belief in the faith, namely Jesus Christ, son of the living God, if he is not the object of the faith, it doesn't matter what faith you have. It doesn't matter what belief you espouse. None of it matters. John didn't write these things that we might believe in belief. Hear me. He didn't write these things that you might believe in belief or religion or sports or nothing at all. He wrote them that we would believe in Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And two very specific attributes of Jesus at that. Attributes that sum up and convey everything else about him. The first is that Jesus is the Messiah. The purpose of John is that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These signs, John says in verse 31, these events are written so that you may believe, here it is, believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ, Christ meaning Messiah from the Old Testament. Christ is the English word that translates the Greek word Christos that translates the word Messiah from the Old Testament. Christ and Messiah are one and the same, two interchangeable words and terms that mean anointed one, appointed one, and promised one. And John was written, the Gospel of John was written that we would believe that Jesus is the anointed one. I've tried to frame these three things out so that you will remember them, so that I can remember them as well, so that whenever you hear Jesus referred to as Christ, whenever you see it in the scriptures, whenever you hear someone say Messiah, you think anointed one, appointed one, promised one. Anointed, appointed, promised. Anointed, appointed, promised. He's the, the anointed one, Jesus is. As in the one God the Father set apart and blessed, consecrated and blessed, showed his favor to, to rule and reign. God anointed Jesus to rule and reign. First in our hearts and our church, our hearts and our church, and someday over the whole world. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. Second, he's the appointed one, the messianic appointed one, the one God chose, chose to seek and to save the lost, chose, appointed to seek and to save the wandering sheep, you and I, before we gave our lives to Christ, before we were so gripped in our heart and soul that we could do nothing else but bend the knee and follow him. He's the appointed one, the one that God chose to find and deliver us. And third, he's the promised one. 
the anointed one, the appointed one, and the promised one. That is, the one God foretold who would do all that he said, who would fulfill all that he spoke. Which means believing that Jesus is the Christ doesn't just mean acknowledging it or accepting it as true, but actually trusting it, trusting his Messiahship, trusting his promises, trusting his fulfillment, trusting him as the Christ. The Gospel of John is written that we may believe that Jesus is the appointed, anointed, appointed, and promised Messiah. Second, it was written that we may believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is Messiah, and that he is God in the flesh. These things, once again, same verse, these things are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, here it is, the Son of God. The Son of God, someone with the very essence of God, someone with the very attributes of God, someone who actually is God. That's the idea of sonship in first century Judaism, the time that this Bible was written, at least the New Testament, this time of Christ. Sonship carried the idea that a son was thought to be cut from the same cloth as his Father, as in having the same essence, which means Jesus, as the Son of God, is God in the flesh, having the very same essence, not the same kind of essence, but actually the same essence, one and the same. I and the Father are one, we're going to find Jesus saying in this gospel. He has the very same essence of God. He's fully God and fully man. God in the flesh. It's the very thing that we saw a couple of months ago in chapter one, isn't it? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh, the, the God, the word who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. All of which refers to Jesus, the only son from the Father, verse 14 says. So Jesus is God in the flesh. Whenever you see that phrase, son of God, think God in the flesh. If you have a hard time getting your mind and heart around that whole idea of son of God, which is a massive, massive category, at the very least think God in the flesh. God in the flesh. He was when he walked the earth. He still is in his glorified flesh. The point being, this entire gospel was written, the entire thing was written, that we might believe that. That. Of all the things that John could have capped off his gospel with here at the end, of all the things that he could have said after saying so many things that we're going to find, I just can't wait, I can't wait. Of all the things, this is one of two that he chose to summarize and convey all that Jesus is and all that we would believe about him and in him. The question is why? I mean, if this gospel was written that we might believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, like why? What is the big deal about that? 
Maybe you've asked yourself that from time to time. Like, what's it matter if I believe that Jesus was just a man or the God-man? What's it matter? Well, believing he was just a man, even a really good man, robs him of his glory, denies the truth, perpetuates your sin, and leads to idolatry. It's a huge deal. It robs him of his glory in that if you think of Jesus as just a man, you won't think of him the way that you should or worship him the way he deserves. You just won't. It denies the truth thinking of him as just a man. It denies the truth because his divinity as the Son of God is the explicit testimony of this entire book, not just the book of John, but the entire Bible. And thinking of him otherwise is, is just a flat-out denial of the truth. It perpetuates your sin because such denial is wrong, even blasphemous. I mean, in Jesus' day, the, the Jews thought it was blasphemous that he would be considered God. In, in our day, because of the life of Christ and the testimony of the Scriptures, it's just the opposite. It's blasphemous that we would consider him as just a man. And it leads to idolatry because you end up worshiping something less than him. In fact, you end up worshiping a figment of your imagination literally made in your own image. If you think that he's just a man. And worst of all, on top of all that, believing that Jesus was just a man keeps you from life. It keeps you from life. It keeps you from being saved. Last phrase of verse 31, check it out. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, believing that he's God in the flesh, you may have life in his name. Life according to who he is and what he's done, summarized and represented by his name. No belief, no life. It's a big deal, a big deal. And it's the purpose for which John wrote, that we may believe and have life accordingly. Have life accordingly. These things are written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life, eternal life. Full life, forever life, glorious life, glorious but difficult life, glorious and God-glorifying life, full and yet aching from time to time, life. It's a theme found throughout John's gospel. Believe and keep believing and eternal life is yours, starting right now. Believe and keep believing and eternal death is canceled. It's cancel culture in the very best sense of that phrase. Believe and keep believing and your eternal death, your condemnation is canceled. 
Believe and keep believing and heaven awaits. Believe and keep believing and life to the full is yours. Life in the name of Jesus according to who he is and what he's done and why he came. Life in the presence of God under the authority of God for the glory of God. That kind of life, that kind of life is yours, is ours if you believe. That's why it was written. No wonder people recommend the book of John. No wonder. It's the purpose of this book. To believe that Jesus is the divine Savior and that by believing, have life in him and live for him. Which brings us to the background. That's the purpose and now the background that we may know. The purpose that we may believe and the background that we may know. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to know some of the background of John. This isn't just throw away. This isn't just fly over country. I want you to know some of the background of John so that you're all the more assured of what it says. And here it is. You're all the more inclined to apply it. Because as with all of Scripture, it was written by a real person in a real place at a real time to real people with real issues just like ours, just like mine. I want you to be, have the utmost confidence in this gospel. And so here's a little bit of background. Let's start with, <clears throat> excuse me, the author, the Apostle John. The author, you might be like, hello. Well, and I would be like, there are people who try to argue otherwise. It's a losing battle. But the author of the Gospel John is the Apostle John. We'll talk about this several times over as we study it, but for now, that's the title in the earliest manuscripts, just like you see the title in pre-chapter one in your Bible. It's the title in the earliest manuscripts, and that's the implication of the internal evidence, as we'll see, and that's the testimony of the earliest church fathers, like Irenaeus, who knew Polycarp, who was discipled by John. Polycarp said John wrote the gospel, heard it from his own mouth and saw it for his own eyes. Polycarp passed that along to Irenaeus and Irenaeus recorded it for us and said so. The author is the apostle John that we may know. Second is the audience, probably Gentile believers. Probably Gentile believers. I say probably because John doesn't explicitly say that. Though, in saying that it was probably Gentile believers, it would also have been appropriate for Jews and unbelievers. No doubt about it, just like today. But there's no doubt that John assumes that we already know some things about Jesus. There's just no getting around that. And that the Roman names for some of the things that he mentions indicate an audience of Gentiles. He uses Roman names for some of the places in Israel proper is to clue us in that, and to help the original audience, the Gentile believers, know what in the world he was talking about because there were Roman names for things in Israel and there were Jewish names for things in Israel, just like today. Some people call it Palestine, which is a perversion of Israel. Palestine came from the Romans wanting to do away with the entire label of Israel at 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and ransacked. And the Romans thought, if we can just change the name of the country, we'll eliminate all of the Judaism and everything else that's associated with it. And therefore, nobody else will ever remember what it was about. Oops. 
John uses some of those Roman names, and it probably indicates a Gentile audience. In fact, it's likely that John wrote from Ephesus in the heart of the Roman Empire, the heart of that Gentile nation. And that's where Irenaeus and Eusebius said that he settled Ephesus, and others said that he was buried there. And so he probably wrote to believers just like us. Third is the time of writing, probably after 70 AD, probably after the destruction of that temple. Once again, that's the testimony of another early church father, Clement of Alexandria. And once again, it's the indication of place names in his gospel that weren't used until late in the first century, well after 70 AD. Like, for instance, the Sea of Tiberias. Maybe you've seen that as you've read, read the Gospel of John. It's a reference, a Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. But that term, Sea of Tiberias, wasn't used until late in the first century. And so John probably wrote sometime after AD 70 and maybe as late as 85 or 90 just before he wrote the book of Revelation. And then fourth, regarding background that we may know, is the occasion, probably opposition and confusion. Probably opposition and confusion. The fact that John wrote his gospel quite a bit later than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, probably indicates the need for a reasoned defense of Christianity in light of opposition and confusion. And it's not hard to see, as John would have been living in Ephesus, the heart of pagan country, where opposition abounded, not just from the Gentiles, but also from Jews at the time. And so it probably indicates that he was writing for the purpose of opposing and helping to clear up some of this confusion. Plus, the way John writes and records the various events indicates an apologetic mindset, as I mentioned from the top, a, a reasoned defense for who Jesus is and what he did. He doesn't just recount the miracles. We're going to see this. He doesn't just recount the miracles like we find in the other Gospels so often. He includes rebuttals against those who doubted the miracles. He doesn't just record the events. He includes commentary and conversations to explain them. That's the background. Author, audience, time, and occasion. All that we may know. That we may know the facts and be all the more inclined to apply the truth. I hope that increases your confidence. And then last are the differences. Differences that we may resolve. Purpose that we may believe background that we may know, and differences that we may resolve. The Gospel of John, you've probably noticed, is different. If you've read it any time recently, you might even say unorthodox. Not in a truth sort of sense, but just different than the norm. The norm being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, it's, it's different from how it's laid out to what it includes, or for that matter, excludes, which John openly discloses in verse 30. Check it out again. Now, Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, he excludes a whole lot, some of which we know because it's found in the other Gospels and much of which we don't know. In fact, he says later on in chapter 21 that if all the things that Jesus said and did were to be included in books, it would be books upon books written about him. And so there's obviously a whole bunch that we don't know that's not included. And that leads to significant differences between John and the other Gospels. The other Gospels include a whole bunch that John doesn't, and John includes stuff that they don't, and so there are differences upon differences. Differences that most theologians call the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem. It's a big word, a strange word probably for most. When I first heard it, I, I mean, it, I think it probably took me years to figure out what in the world this word even means. And I heard it in a class, shame on me. Synoptic simply means together in common. Together in common. It's most commonly used by us to say a summary. He gave a synopsis. But that's not how it's used here in this theological sense by theological heads. The synoptic problem, synoptic means together in common, referring to the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar, very similar. Similar in their order in which they lay things out, similar in their content, what they include, and not exactly, but, but similar. And they're similar in their style, their, their narrative, the way they write about the various things of Jesus. They have a lot in common, because of which they're often called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. And that's a problem, some people say, strong on air quotes. That's a problem because John is very different. Some people say this. This is so different, they say, that we can't really trust the gospel of John. It's so different from the others, we can't really trust it. You can't trust it. I mean, come on. For instance, consider all the things that John includes that the others don't, like the first contact Jesus had with some of his disciples, Philip and so on. Or... The wedding at Canaan, Cana, wedding at Cana. John includes that. It's not found in the others. Or his interaction with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, you must be born again. My favorite scene of the chosen thus far. Or his encounter with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. We're, we're all familiar with that if you've ever read, read the book of John. Like none of those events are found in the synoptic gospels. None of them. Not one, one, one whisper, not one reference, not one allusion. They're, they're just not there, which makes for a problem in some people's eyes. Not only that, but he doesn't include, John doesn't include a whole bunch of other things that the others do, like a birth account for Jesus, not found in the Gospel of John. Nor is his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. Not there. Or, or any of the parables, there's not one parable there's not even one parable in the Gospel of John, let alone a parable from the other Gospels. And massively so, the vast majority of Jesus' great Galilean travels in the first half, the entire first half of his ministry is completely missing 
in the Gospel of John, missing. What's more, only seven miracles are recounted in the Gospel of John. And I went back and checked all this. Only seven miracles are recounted in the Gospel of John, and of those, only two are found in the synoptics. Plus, the interactions that Jesus has in this Gospel are far more theological, far more theological. You know, talking about the things of God, not just the acts of God or the words of God. Talking about the, the things that are behind all of the acts and behind all of the words. It's way more theological than the others. The others are far more ethical and practical, leading some people, because of all of that, all of those differences, it leads some people to say, it's contrived. Come on, it's fabricated. Don't you see it? And most difficult of all is John's order the chronology of the events that he includes. It's not only different than the synoptics in many places, but it jumps from one place to the next with not much transition. I mean, it's pretty abrupt, even from one thought to the next. So it's true, differences abound. They do. But does that mean that we can't trust it? Or that it's fabricated? Or, or that he pieced it together in some patchwork way, leaving us with a false impression, intended or not? Does, does it mean that just because of all the differences? Not at all. Not at all. The differences can be resolved. The chronologies can be synced. Not without difficulty, but they can be synced. The problem, if you will, has a solution. A solution that I call the gospel solution. The gospel solution. Referring, of course, to the gospel of John. A solution comprised of four quick thoughts. Number one, John wrote separately from the others. And th this is the first reason why there are differences, so many differences between the gospel of John and the synoptics. John wrote separately from the others at a different time and a different place, much later than the others. And in completely different place than the others. So it's no wonder that his perspective and his layout are different. It's no wonder. If it wasn't, that would be a legitimate reason to question it. Second, John wrote for different purposes. John wrote separately from the others, and John wrote for different purposes. Instead of laying out an orderly account of Jesus' life and ministry, like Luke tells us in his gospel, John writes topically, topically. It's obvious. Picking and choosing various events in the life of Christ, various discourses, various conversations, only as they serve to address various theological issues. That's one of the reasons why recommending the book of John is both a good idea and a bad idea. It's a good idea because an, a new believer can excuse me, understand it. They can pick up the nuggets of gold along the way for sure, oh for sure, and the Lord can use it to lead them to belief. But a new believer is probably not going to be able to mine the book of John, John for all that it's worth, for the treasures in the vein of gold deep beneath the surface. I get ahead of myself, but the second solution is the fact that John wrote for different purposes to address specific issues. Third, John had knowledge the others didn't. John had knowledge the others didn't. 
knowledge due to his presence in Jesus' inner circle. He and his brother and Peter. Peter, James, and John. That's this John. So he was obviously privy to thoughts and conversations that the other disciples weren't privy to, leading to differences in his account. Not discrepancies, but differences. And then fourth, John wrote deeply. John wrote separately from the others, part of the first part of the solution to the synoptic problem, quote-unquote. John wrote for different purposes. John had knowledge the others didn't. And John wrote deeply. More than the other Gospels, the Gospel of John is a theological treatise. It, it actually puts the fear of God in me as I have begun to study this and, and, and wonder to myself, how in the world am I going to explain that? I have a hard time understanding it myself it's that good and it's that deep. And in the strength that God provides, I'm going to try, oh, I'm going to try, and I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will take whatever feeble attempts that I have in explaining it, and he will bear it and, 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 and place it on your heart and imprint it on your heart and soul so that you understand it in such an extraordinary way that you are changed and you continue to believe forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's a theological treatise covering a number of truths that plumb deep doctrinal depths from the sovereignty of God to the body and blood of Christ. Not that it can't be understood by a new believer, but it's a treasure waiting to be mined by all believers. Four parts of a gospel solution to a problem that's really not. The differences can be resolved. And one last thought here. To some extent, that's why the differences are there. The differences can be resolved, and to some extent, that's why they're here, to make us resolve them, to make us think and pay attention all the more. Because while some things Jesus did were excluded, these things were written that you may believe, that you may believe fully and completely and eternally. Let's pray. Father, we do. We do believe. Oh, how I believe, Lord. More than I did at the beginning of this week, more than I did last year, thinking how can that possibly be in previous days, but I believe more. I'm more fully convinced. I trust more. I have faith in you more. Oh God, we believe. And to the extent that we don't, please forgive us and help us. Help us to accept your word as true. Help us completely trust you with our lives. Help us put our faith in your son. And by all means and any means, Lord, help us to live the life that you've given us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord.